It's great to see everyone out this morning. Thankful for the opportunity I have to to speak to you a little bit about God's Word. This morning we're going to continue the series, like I said last time, the kind of makeshift series that I've kind of come up with, with misused verses. This is probably going to be the last one I do for a while, so if you don't like it, then you just have to sit through one more. So, But this morning we're going to be looking through Matthew 18 and verse 20. Uh, This verse... Jesus here is talking to his disciples. He says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. You know, many times I've heard this verse as I've grown up. I've heard this verse used in, during a prayer where the congregation is gathered and, and the, the person prays and they say, we're so thankful that you're in our midst, in our midst or you're among us. I've heard this at, at, at church services where maybe the congregation had dwindled to a very small size, and this verse is re- very reassuring in the fact that it's telling them that because they are gathered together, even though they are small in size, that Jesus st- is still among them. I've heard this used when people can't make it to their church service, and there's two or three people together, and they meet, and they say, well, two or three of us are together. God is in our midst. And while... Many of the verses, like I said last time, that we've, that we've looked at can have a very dangerous meaning when taken out of context. This one, not so much. I believe that that's the truth. I believe that when we're gathered together, God is with us. But have you ever thought of the inverse of what that means? What happens when we're alone? Is God with us? I hope so. Paul states in Galatians chapter 2 and 20, he says, Christ lives in me. He also talks about in in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, talking about how we are the temple of God, of the living God. Not only that, we know that God is omnipresent. Matthew chapter 6, and verse 6, Jesus says, But when you go in to pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So what does that tell us? It tells us that even when we're on our own, God is with us. It doesn't take two or three of us to be together. So while that's not dangerous, I think when we look at this verse in that kind of context, we miss out on some very good teaching. And that's something that I've found when I've, as I've been going through this series is that when I look at these verses that are pulled out of context, when I dig into the context, I study something that I haven't really thought about a lot before. It's something that, that I might not normally preach on or, or talk about or study about. And, this, and today is no exception to that. So this morning, I want to look at Matthew. I want to look at Matthew eighteen and verse twenty and see what the context is actually talking about. I want to back up and just like we always do, I want to look at the verses that surround this verse and see what we can gain from this verse as a Christian, as a church, as a congregation. So this morning, I want to back up to verse fifteen, and I think we see the point of or what he's referring to in Matthew chapter twenty. If we back up to verse fifteen of the same chapter. And what he says is, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Very different context than what we usually take this to be talking about. So what we see is, is that Jesus here is talking about the idea of conflict resolution within the church, among members of the church, that would eventually potentially lead to church discipline. 
That's what it's about. That's what he's talking about. And he goes through four steps. And we want to take a look at each one of these in a little more detail this morning. First one is to go to them privately. Secondly is to take two or three trusted witnesses. The third one is to bring, bring it before the church. And finally, it would be to treat that person as a sinner. This is not a very fun topic to talk about, is it? It's not something we normally think about a lot. But it's something that I think we can gain a lot of information from, but a lot of faith and hope building from the same idea, from what he's trying to teach us this morning. So let's look at that first one where he talks about going to them privately. And we're going to spend a little more time on this one because I think this one is the most important step of the process. They're all, every step of that process is important, but I think this one is extremely important, and that's to go to them privately. The fact is, is most conflicts, if you are willing to go to that person privately, this is where it's going to end. This is where it's going to stop. It's going to take care of the problem. What you're going to find the majority of the time is that what you think happened might have been a mistake. You also might figure out that we're all sinners. We all have issues. Maybe I caught that person at a bad time. You're going to find out that they might have no clue what you're talking about. The problem is, is too many times we're unwilling to take this step. Why? Because it's confrontational and we don't want to do that. Because it gets us out of our comfort zone. But the problem with that is, if we don't take that step, it leads to bigger problems for us, for the church, and for that person. So, I want to look at this verse a little closer. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, he says, If your brother sins against you. So the first thing we need to understand, again, this is talking about a brother in the congregation, in the church, that has obeyed the gospel. A brother that has, a brother sins against you. Now, one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this when I dug into it and I started studying it, a lot of the early manuscripts leave the words against you out. Now, it doesn't really change the meaning of what, what's happening here. It doesn't change the instruction that Jesus is giving. What it does, though, is it causes us to look at it in a different, from a different lens because it becomes against us. It becomes a personal attack against me. And I start to make it about myself. But when you take that away against you, it's all about the brother sinning. And that's really what this is about. It doesn't matter if he sinned against me. It doesn't matter if he sinned against somebody else. What matters is that that brother or sister is sinning against God. That's the important thing here. And that's what we need to understand. It's not, a, it's not about me. It's about the fact that that person is possibly putting themselves in a dangerous situation for their soul. And when we see that, when we see that happening, we, under, we have to understand that we have a responsibility. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, he says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of, our, of your sins, of sin. That's what it's about. It's about seeing a brother and sister in danger and saying, I need to do what I can to help them. Whether they've offended me or offended somebody else, or we just know that they're in sin. And I want to say this also. This isn't about one sin. If you see a brother sin, this isn't about that. This is a life of sin. This is a dedication to sin. Like we said, we all have issues. We all have problems. We all sin. 
This is a, a deeper sin. This is a deeper, I'm in it, I can't get out of it, I need help. That's what this is talking about. Now, does that mean that we can't go to somebody that maybe we've seen them sin or we've seen them do something wrong and talk to them about it? By all means, do it. But when you're going through this process, this is about somebody who is stuck in sin, who is struggling with it, that needs help. Are we willing to take that first step? Are we willing to do what it says next and go? Are we willing to make that decision to get out of our comfort zone and help that that brother or sister? I think to truly understand, though, the mindset of what's happening here with these disciples, we have to go all the way back to the very first verse of this chapter. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 1, he says, And at, at that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? So these disciples come and they asked Jesus this question, but this isn't the real question, is it? The real question is, which one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Which one of us means the most to you? And what I find interesting about this whole chapter leading up to this point, up to Matthew chapter eight, or Matthew 18, verse 15, the whole chapter is this idea where Jesus is essentially encouraging these disciples to look past their own selfishness, to look past their own pride, and understand the importance of the souls of others. That's what it's about. It's about seeing the importance of a brother or sister and importance of their soul and not just worrying about yourself. And I think we can see that a little further as we move on in this chapter in verse 10. Jesus says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety and nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of the Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Think about that for a second. What is he saying? These men had just come to him and said, which one of us is the most important? And now he's saying, is he not going to go after that sheep that goes astray? You see, God, Christ, values the souls of every single person in this room. God values the, the souls of every single person in this city, in this state, in this world. It's not about who's greater. It's not about us deciding how great we are in the kingdom. It's about understanding the value and the importance of the soul in the eyes of Christ. Do we value those souls the same way? Do we show value in those souls? Really what Jesus is doing is he's redirecting their motives. Stop looking at yourself. Stop worrying about your own popularity. Stop worrying about what's going on with you and see the importance of a soul of somebody else. See the importance of a soul of somebody who may have walked away or who may be struggling with sin. That's what it's about. And go as a command saying, go, make this decision. It's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But make that decision to go and take the steps that I give you. And again, that can be a very daunting task. But what he tells him next, he says, tell him his fault. And here's what I want us to understand also. The fault 
is not me being offended because somebody didn't talk to me. The fault is not me being offended because I didn't get invited to something or by all means, if you are struggling with that, go talk to them. Fix that issue. But what this is talking about is a sin problem. Go show him. And if you look at the, at the definition of tell, it's to expose, to rebuke, to refute, to show fault, to convince, to convict. It's about going to that brother and sister because you love their soul enough to say, hey, I see this sin in your life. I want to help you with that. I want to help you fix that. And it's not about me going and saying, this is a sin. It's about me looking in the word of God and, and showing them that this is a sin because the sin is not up to me. I don't decide what a sin is and what it isn't, but who does? Jesus Christ, God, the word of God. We can go to the word of God and we need to show them, hey, I see you're in this situation. I see you have this problem. Let's talk it out. Let's work it out. But it's important that it's not our own definition or our own opinion. We can define sin. We can look to the word of God and we can decide what is sin and what isn't. Again, this is a, this is a process for a brother or sister who is struggling with sin. That's what this process is about. And this process is not about me going to lay the hammer down on somebody because they did something wrong. It's the wrong motivation. What it's about is me seeing a brother or sister in Christ in need and me going to help them because I love their soul, because I want what's best for them. That's what it's about. And I think here's the most important part of the most important step is that, is that we go to that person alone. He says, between you and him alone. And I think this is where we mess up a lot. A lot of times we're going to go to five of our closest friends and we're going to tell them all about what happened. We might say, oh, I need your advice on this. And we, let's talk about this. And I tell them the whole story. It's not okay. That's not what we're supposed to do. He says, take it to them and them alone. Because here's the problem. I go, I tell my five closest friends that I know are going to take my side. And not only do I have resentment or anger towards that person, guess what? They do too. And this is just a recipe for distrust and disaster in the congregation. We got to take it to them. If we see a concern in their lives, let's take it to them. Not because, again, we want to lay the hammer down or we want them to get what they deserve, but because they need us to do that. Because we love their soul and we're willing to do that. The fact is, is we may have a one-sided view. We might not know what actually happened. We might not know what's going on. And yet we're going to go tell other people before we go talk to that person. Because again, most of these conflicts are going to take care of themselves if we'll just go talk to that person. That's why I say that's the most important step. And he says there's two results. Either if he listens to you, you have gained your brother, which is reconciliation. That's the hope. That's what we hope happens. He says, if that doesn't happen, you've got to move to the next step. And that next step is to take others with you. Now, this is really the first time that anyone else should know about this. 
This is the first time that anyone else should hear about this. Now, I will say, some of us may need advice. I think that's okay. We can go to somebody that we trust and talk to them about not the specific situation, but get advice on, on you know, what happens if this happens. But before this, we don't need to bring anybody else into it. That's between us and that person. But at this point, it's time. We've gone to them. We've showed them through the word of God that, hey, there's an issue. And they say, I'm not, I'm not changing. I'm sticking with it. I'm going to continue to live in this sin. He says, it's time to bring others with you. He says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Again, this isn't an opportunity to gang up on the person. It's not an opportunity to make them feel bad about themselves. Because really this whole process is about love, about a love for their soul. How are we approaching that? What this does is it provides witnesses to corroborate exactly what's, what's going on. To help us to truly see from an outside view, especially if, if I'm the one offended, it's hard for me to make a clear decision sometimes. It's hard for me to see the other side. But when we have that opportunity to take two or three with us, it's a time that they can evaluate the situation being outside of the situation and have a clearer view of that. It gives an outside perspective. It ensures fair treatment. And I would say this is probably a great time to include an elder or two. This is the time. And here's why. Because that elder, both of those people are a part of their flock. They're unbiased in that situation. You want somebody unbiased? You're not going to take your five closest friends. That's just not what we need to do. We're going to take people who can be trusted to have a neutral view in the situation, to evaluate the situation, to make sure that this is truly sin according to the word of God. But it can help confirm that that's an actual sin, not just an opinion on my part. But what we see is that the same thing happens. You have two choices here. Either there's reconciliation or you move to step three. Now, step three is where it's taken before the church. And again, this is a very extreme, cha- a very extreme case. Hopefully, we'll never see this. But this is when somebody is so entrenched in their sin that they're not willing to make the change. They're not willing to change for Jesus Christ. They're not willing to change for anybody. And most of the time, Somebody holding on to their sin like this is not going to want to go through this situation because it's not a fun situation. It's not something we as a, as a congregation want to have to go through. And a lot of times, unfortunately, that person may leave the church before this even takes place. But more than likely, at this point, all options have been exhausted. If done correctly, all options, we've, it's been approached by you alone. You've taken two people Hopefully you've done studies. Hopefully you've gone through the whole process. And again, showing love through the whole process, I think is the key. I think many times in the past, this has been used as a way to help people get what other people think they deserve, and that's not okay. 
It's all about our motivation. It's all about what's pushing us. And that's a love for this person's soul. But again, all options have been exhausted. The offender is refusing to correct the sin. And a lot of times people look at this and they, where it says, if, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Well, when you look at the church, some people think that's the, the leadership of the congregation. But if you look at that word, it's the word ecclesia. And that's the congregation, the assembly, a group of people gathered together. It's taken before the church. A very tough situation. But again, the point is reconciliation. Help that person's soul get right with God. That's the whole point. But if that doesn't work, a final decision has to be made, and that's to treat that, that person as a sinner. This is where fellowship is being withdrawn. And again, this is a touchy subject. It's a hard subject, but it's the Word of God. It's His instruction. The fact is the refusal to heed the Word leads to separation from God and the church. And really all this is is, is this last-ditch effort, this last step showing that the church can't tolerate sin. The church can't afford to have sin running rampant through the congregation. And again, we're all going to make mistakes. That's not what this is about. This is about somebody who is so deep in their sin, who's living a life covered in sin, that's not willing to make a change. They love the world more than they love God at this point. They're, make, they're making their choice. But think about if that sinner remains in the church. Think of the danger to the congregation. The fact that division could take place where one person, that person who's in sin, takes five or six other people to his side. And then you've got a division in the church. What about the fact that that sin might spread to other people? I think we see an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 that we're going to look at here in just a little bit. But you know, this seems harsh. And it's hard for us to even consider thinking about making a decision like that. But the fact is, it's all about reconciliation, just like every other step. The removal of the blessings of the church will hopefully bring repentance, and that's what it's about. But again, it has to be done in a loving manner. He says, treat them as a Gentile or a or tax collector, a sinner. Well, how do we treat sinners? Hopefully, we treat a sinner with love. Hopefully, we treat a sinner with understanding. Hopefully, we treat a sinner with an opportunity to make the change in their lives. But too many times, we want to hold these things personally, and we can't. We want to take them personally, and we can't do that. We have to continue to show love. And as harsh as this situation is, and as tough as this situation would have to be if we ever had to face that, it's going to cause us guilt. It's going to cause us to question us, ourselves. It's going to cause us to question what the decisions that are made. But I think that's exactly why Jesus goes on in the next few verses. In verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. When you look at those words, bind and loose, bind means to forbid or prohibit the person. It seems to fall in line with what we've just talked about, right? Prohibiting that person from being a part of the fellowship. But he also talks about this idea of loosing them. When you look at that definition, it's to restore to the community. And what tell, that tells me is that, again, this is not about 
giving something what they giving somebody something that they deserve. It's more about, hey, here's an opportunity to get right. And that's what it's about. It's about bringing that person back to the fold, doing whatever it takes to get that person back in, in a safe condition with Jesus Christ. He goes on in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 19, and he says, And again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That word anything, if you look at that word, it can mean anything, but it can also be talking about something a little more general, a little, or a little more specific, I'm sorry. It has a more specific meaning. When speaking of lawsuits, disputes, legal matters, which again, falls right in with what we've been talking about. If you look at this same word used in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, they use the same word referring to a legal case that a Christian might bring against another Christian. Seems to mesh very well with the idea that we just talked about, about this idea of, of that church discipline. That word ask can also mean to make a demand or to pursue a legal claim. You see that example used in, in Acts chapter 25, verses 3 and verse 15, where the Jewish elders were bringing charges against Paul. They said, asking for a sentence of condemnation. Same idea. Same, same usage of that word. It falls directly in line. They also, over and over, Paul, over and over, Jesus talks about the idea of two or three. Why is that so important? Earlier it said, so that two or three witnesses would be there to corroborate that story, to, to make sure the judgment is made correctly. Why is two or three so important? Well, think about that for a second. If it's just my word against somebody else, well, what good? Well, we're going to go in a circle. But when you bring two or three in and they hear what's happening, they evaluate it, they test it against God's word, guess what? You have two or three people who know the situation, who can make a strong judgment on that. You look back at the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15, talking about bringing a charge against somebody. It says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. And one person's word against another is not enough. And while I don't believe that what he's talking about here is that you have to have two or three people witnessing this person's sin before you go talk to them, I don't believe that. I believe it's all about the judgment that's being made. And if you look back at, at the ancient Jewish customs, the ancient Jewish traditions, one way that they made those judgments was to have three witnesses to make that decision on things like property cases, theft, personal injury, those type of cases. Three judges had to come to a judgment on that. Because again, it's not about me against somebody else. It's about truly evaluating, is this sin? Is there something going wrong that needs to be corrected? Is this person willing to repent before we go to that next step? And the fact is, if that agreement is made in that judgment, it would be taken to the church if need be. If, that, if the next step has to happen, that disciplinary action would be taking place. But again, it's not about me against you. It's about making sure that what that person is being accused of is actually happening. And whether that person is willing to repent and come back. 
Because again, it's about their soul. And in verse 20, the verse that we've talked about this morning, it says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. There am I among them. See, it's not about the fact that we gather as two and we have a congregation. or That's not what it's about. What it's about is that in this situation, a tough decision has to be made. Hopefully, reconciliation will be brought about because of that. But in the end, what he's saying here is, if you do it according to my will, if you follow the steps that I have laid out and you do it the way I've asked you to do it, I'm gonna back that decision is what it's about. And that's what he's saying here. It's not about me doing it the way I wanna do it. It's not about what I think. We talked about the fact that if we ever had to go through that, we're gonna feel some guilt. It's gonna be tough. It's it's gonna seem harsh. But in the end, God is gonna back that if we do it according to his will. And that's what, it, that's what he's talking about here. And I think we see this play out in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, he says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. So there's, there's this man in sin. And it's true sin. He says, not even the pagans, not even those outside of the church accept this, and yet you are okay with it. You are allowing it in the church. And we see that in verse two. He says, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? He says, you should be mourning this. This should be a problem for you. And if you go down a little further, he talks about the idea of a little leaven, leaveneth the whole lump. A little sin can cause a much bigger problem within the church. And that was what was happening. So he goes on in that verse and he says, let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit and as, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, again, that idea of backing of Jesus Christ in that situation, He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. What's he saying? When he talks about delivering that person to Satan, it's that same idea that we talked about in Matthew chapter 18. Treating them as a sinner. Same same idea. But what's the purpose of that? To make them feel bad about themselves? To make them know how bad they are? No. No. It's about showing enough love and seeing a sin in a brother or sister's life and understanding their soul's in danger and doing what we need to do to take care of that and to help them in that situation. Because it doesn't end there. He goes on to say, so that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the purpose. It's not the purpose about them getting what they deserve. It's about them getting back to where they need to be in right standing with God. That's what it's all about. So as we conclude this morning, I want to think about some important things about this idea of conflict resolution. When we take these steps and we do these steps and we go through this, it's important for those whose soul is in danger. Very important there. But it's also important for the church as a whole, but also our own viewpoint. 
and not harboring that kind of anger or hatred in our hearts. Secondly, the most, one of the most important things about this is that God will back this when it's according to his will. We can't go out and do it on our own and think we know what we, we can do it our way and it's the better way than Christ. It's just like anything else. Are we willing to submit to God and his will and follow those steps that he's laid out? Are we willing to do that? Or are we going to go to others first and tell everybody else about the situation before we go to that person? Or are we going to take our, friend, take our friends with us when we know that they're going to side with us? Or are we going to truly trust in God's process? just like everything else we do. But I think the most important thing from this whole situation and what I want us to take from this, this is a tough subject. It's not something that's very fun to talk about. And hopefully it's not something that we ever have to really deal with to this point. But the purpose of each step is reconciliation. That's what it's about. It's about the the fact that we are sinners and we're gonna make bad mistakes sometimes and if we get to that point where it's drug us down so much that we're separated from God, hoping that somebody loves me enough if I get to that point that they'll take these steps to get me back to where I need to be. Because I can be stubborn. But it's all about reconciliation. You look at each, each point. You go to your brother privately. It's about reconciliation. Not reconciliation with me, hopefully that's a side product of this, but a reconciliation with God. We go to step two, taking others with us. The point is reconciliation with God. It has to go to the church. It's not to be mean, it's to hopefully bring that person back to good standing with God. And finally, if it came to the point where that person had to be treated as a sinner, where where that fellowship was withdrawn, that eventually the, the, the process would bring them back to reconciliation with God. And here's what I love about the Word of God. He doesn't leave us hanging. In 1 Corinthians 5, in verse, in beginning of verse 1, we learned about a guy who made some bad decisions, who held on to his sin, who wasn't willing to let go of those. And when I look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 5, this seems almost to point back to that same man. He says, Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. That punishment was enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you, reaffirm your love for him. If this indeed is that man, the process worked. The process worked. And what he's saying is, is he's made that decision. He's repented. The, the, pub, the, the punishment that was given by the majority was enough to bring him back to where he needed to be. And now it's your turn to forgive. Now it's your turn to bring him back to be a part of the congregation, to be a part of the family. And that's what it's all about. That's what it's about. It's a tough subject. It's not a fun subject to talk about. 
But I think if you take anything from this lesson, here's what I want you to understand. Is the value of your soul to God. That's what it's about. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He wants us to repent. He wants us to come back. And according to God and his word, if this situation takes place, this is the best way to accomplish that in those steps. It's all about reconciliation. And I think about myself. And I think about my sin. And I think about my problems. And I know that God died on the cross for me and for you, for every one of us. Why? Not because he had to, but because my soul and your soul and everyone's soul has value to him. And his hope is that we all are a part of that kingdom. That's his hope for us. And the fact is, if he loved me that much, do I value the soul of my brother or sister in Christ that much also? To show love, to show forgiveness, to do what I need to do to help that person in any way that I can to make sure that they're okay in the sight of Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and maybe you've turned your back on God, maybe you've walked away, maybe you're just struggling. One of the blessings, one of the greatest blessings of being a part of a congregation like the one we have here is the love that we have for each other. The value that we place on each other's souls. And if you need the help of the church, we can pray for you, we can pray with you. Something else I want us to realize, that even if we're not a part of the church this morning, even if, if we have not obeyed the gospel, your soul still has value. Jesus Christ still died for you, and he's waiting for you to accept that and obey his gospel. And we can help you with that if you come to the front as we stand and sing.